It's May 1985. U.S. and Soviet diplomats are working through the night to arrange a meeting between President Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev, who has just become the leader of the Soviet Communist Party. After decades of Cold War, the future looks like it might be a little lighter. Wham! has just become the first Western band to perform in China. In the US, the opening line of the number one song in the charts is Hey, 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 hey! With Simple Minds, Don't You Forget About Me propelled to number one when it's featured in a hit movie about that most profound of subjects, some school kids in detention. Posters for the Goonies are everywhere, too. Norway wins Eurovision with a band called Bobby Socks. Sidney Sheldon and Daniel Steele sit atop the New York Times bestseller list. On May 16th, Michael Jordan is named NBA Rookie of the Year, and three British scientists publish a paper announcing they've discovered a hole in the sky over Antarctica. Back to the good old days. The accelerating rate of man's progress. For this is the age of industrial chemistry. As we have progressed as a people, we have taken liberally of our Earth's resources. Scientists have discovered a trend. Each spring, over Antarctica, a hole in the ozone develops. Do you think these chlorofluorocarbons are causing this depletion? They said, oh, it has to be wrong. It has to be wrong. We are passing on extremely grave problems for our children when the time to solve the problems, if they can be solved at all, is now. Have you ever heard of the ozone hole? If you were born after the 1990s, the chances are you might not have. But just before the turn of the century, it was on everybody's lips. The biggest environmental disaster humanity had encountered up to that point. In our new season, Ozone, How to Solve an Environmental Crisis, we'll tell you all about what caused the ozone hole, how it was discovered, and how the world came together to fix it. We'll also show you how the lessons learned then can help us in solving the climate crisis today. This is the story of the ozone hole. No falling apples, no eureka moments. That's how the man who discovered the ozone hole explains what he did. It was a slow, painstaking process of data collection. But like most great discoveries, this one also happened by accident. Not that the people who worked on it didn't know what they were doing, but simply for the fact that they never expected to discover what they in fact uncovered. This chapter begins in 1977 a recent Cambridge University graduate who first wanted to be an astronomer, then a teacher, was mulling over his future when he saw an ad for a job. The British Antarctic Survey was looking for somebody with a background in physics, interested in the weather, and able to program in Fortran, a computer programming language used in scientific research. Jonathan Shanklin thought he ticked all the boxes, so he applied. He didn't get the job, but once the person who got it turned it down, the job was Shanklin's. Shanklin liked the job, which mostly included weather observation and data intake. 
One of his responsibilities was measuring and validating solar radiation data coming from the survey's team in the Antarctic. Even though he spent his days working on analyzing the weather in the polar region, he was based in Oxford, England. That would change soon enough, though. Disagreements about some of the measurements arose between the UK-based team and the Antarctic crew. Next thing he knew, Shanklin was being sent to the coldest continent to clear things up. He still remembers his first trip to Halley Station, a research facility in Antarctica operated by the British Antarctic Survey. So I left England in just before Christmas in 1981. I had um, Christmas in the Falkland Islands and then the voyage south, uh, seeing my first icebergs, seeing a lot of the wildlife, the, the albatrosses following the ship, um, and then reaching Halley Station. At Halley, the temperature never gets above freezing. The water is always frozen. On most trips down there, you might see one or two penguins, a few birds flying over, and that's it. There's there's no other life there. But get back onto the ship on the ocean, and then you'll see seals, you'll see whales, you'll see all the seabirds, and it's really incredibly different. Uh, and then sailing down the Antarctic Peninsula on board the ship, seeing the glaciers tumbling down to the coast, going out in a small boat and in a, a calm day hearing the snap, crackle, pop as uh, glacier ice rocks around in the water and those snap, crackle, pops are air bursting out of the ice that's been trapped perhaps for thousands of years in the glacier. Before leaving for Antarctica, he noticed something in the data that didn't make any sense. The level of ozone in the atmosphere above the Antarctic was dropping. The, the people in the Antarctic were saying uh, the readings are falling off the graph that we're using. And at that time, they were using a, a graph to look up values rather than a computer program, because this was the very early days of computers in scientific use at any rate. Shanklin was an avid reader of scientific journals, so he had heard of theories that the ozone was being damaged by Concord exhaust gases and chemical compounds, chlorofluorocarbons, better known as CFCs. But there had never been any research to suggest that the damage to the layer would happen in the world's southernmost region. He and two colleagues, Joe Farmer and Brian Gardner, started to work out whether the ozone layer was changing. Why were scientists so interested in the ozone to begin with? After all, ozone is just a trace gas in the atmosphere, accounting for only three molecules out of each 10 million molecules of air. In fact, it's crucial for life on Earth. Ozone's simple molecules, made of only three atoms of oxygen, make up the ozone layer, which is located between 15 and 35 kilometers above the planet's surface. This layer protects the Earth from the sun's harmful radiation. Even though we need some of this radiation, too much of it can damage living things. The ozone layer absorbs 98% of the dangerous ultraviolet radiation from the sun, basically serving as the planet's sunscreen and making life on Earth possible. The British Antarctic Survey has been measuring ozone levels since 1957. Their scientists were hoping to track long-term trends but they assumed it would be tough to spot any major changes within just a couple of decades. 
Unfortunately, they were wrong. And so I thought, well, I'll analyze this year's data as that I was working backwards in time. And I'll compare that with what my boss had done 10 years previously. And the values will be the same. And people don't need to worry about using Concord or spray cans or anything like that, which were thought to be going to damage the ozone layer. And the trouble was when I graphed things up, they weren't the same in the Antarctic spring. Joe Farman, the boss, said, oh, don't worry about it this year. Um, very often depends entirely how uh, the winter starts to, to transpire in the Antarctic. Next year, it'll be back to normal. Well, it wasn't back to ne normal the next year. And then I worked back through the, the, the missing data and was able to demonstrate that it was a systematic change, that by and large, each Antarctic spring, we were seeing ozone levels that were lower than the previous one. Some ozone depletion during the Southern Hemisphere spring, which occurs between October and December, could be expected due to specific meteorological and chemical conditions that exist in Antarctica and nowhere else, such as very low winter temperatures. But the numbers were showing a significant difference. What Shanklin discovered was that the October levels of ozone had dropped by about 50% in less than a decade. Something was very wrong. And it wasn't really until I plotted everything out on a single piece of graph paper and drew a straight line through everything that there was something convincing there. And I, I guess once I had that graph, then it really was, um, at least to me, convincing. But there was still the possibility that I'd done my programming wrong. And it took Joe Farman and Brian Gardner six months or more to really believe there was something there. The three researchers wrote the paper and submitted their findings to Nature, the British scientific journal, the same publication in which the discovery of the neutron, the structure of DNA, and the birth of Dolly the sheep were first published. As with any scientific paper, the article had to go through a peer review before publication. One of the people who was asked to review the paper was a young American atmospheric chemist named Susan Solomon. It was quite a shocker. Um... This paper arrived on my desk for review, and uh, if it was right, it was obviously one of the most important things to ever come along. Interestingly enough, I was very young at the time. I was only, um, I was 29, so I was four years past my PhD. I looked at it carefully, decided I couldn't see anything wrong with it. I thought they had done a very nice job of comparing the two stations, several sets of data that they had. But um, it's interesting how, you know, the more experienced people in the field were, were stunned that this paper even got published. They said, oh, it has to be wrong. It has to be wrong. And I always use that as an example to tell students that you can't, you know, one of the most dangerous things about knowledge is you think you know the answer and you need to stay open to change. The published paper, which was entitled Large losses of total ozone in Antarctica reveal seasonal chlorine oxides-nitrogen oxides interaction probably wouldn't capture the general public's attention, but the scientific community was taking notice. The main question scientists had was why the global satellites hadn't noticed this level of ozone depletion. NASA scientists went back years checking their satellite data to see if there was any evidence of the whole there was a lot of data to go over as the satellites had been sending over 200,000 data points per day, but scientists noticed a pattern. 
Their computers were programmed back in the 70s when it was thought that ozone values as low as those being reported in the Antarctic in 1985 would never occur. To put it simply, the computers were dropping these low ozone values because they assumed there must have been a mistake, which meant that low ozone levels were never even registered. But danger to the ozone wasn't something new for people in 1985. Throughout the 1970s, scientists were warning the public of chemicals that were destroying the ozone, then mostly found in spray cans. At that time, we had a great saying, get on the stick to save the ozone layer, meaning stop using spray underarm deodorant, you know, use the stick, which, by the way, is, is very practical because it actually you get more days out of a stick than you do out of a can anyway. Ozone depletion even found its way into popular culture. In 1977, Warner Brothers released Day of the Animals, a horror movie about animals gone wild because of the depletion of the Earth's ozone layer. Although the effect on living organisms is not yet known, people are being advised to remain indoors whenever possible, especially those in high-altitude areas where the sun's rays would be naturally stronger. Dog, I told you that sound seemed damn peculiar today. Day of the Animals was screened on the BBC just days after Nature published the British ozone findings. So even though the dangers of ozone loss were known in the previous decade, nobody was expecting any major changes anytime soon. On the contrary, scientists expected the ozone layer would thin by just 5 to 10% over the next 100 years. That was a theory. It was far in the future and nothing had been observed yet. We had no observational evidence of ozone loss happening yet. And we thought it was going to be a century in the future. It was the way people used to talk about climate change. And then we had the Antarctic ozone hole, which was astonishing. So it made it into a hot crisis. And it showed that we already had a 50% depletion in a place where no one ever expected it. By the time of the next polar spring, the Americans were sending four teams of scientists to figure out what was happening in Antarctica and why it was happening there. So this was something that had, you know, obviously tremendous importance and we needed to get down there now. Ultimately, I was asked by the National Science Foundation, who runs the American program in the Antarctic, to write a proposal because they had to have some kind of just process-wise, they had to have a written proposal to describe what the problem was, what we were planning to do, because it's quite expensive to just, you know, to send people to Antarctica, house them, provide all the logistics support, a building to take measurements and all that stuff. I mean, and then they asked me to lead, NSF asked me to be the, uh, I think they called it head project scientist. And so off we went, 16 people, one woman, who happened to be the leader <laughs> in uh, 1986, in uh, August of 1986. Solomon arrived in Antarctica in late winter and immediately got to work. Our particular research group did visible spectroscopy. So we collected uh, light from the sun, the moon, or the sky using mirrors, basically. Yeah, we had to stand out on the roof in minus 40 with the wind blowing. And, uh, you know, I mean, 
we just didn't have time to develop a remote control mirror system. You know, we only had a couple of months to get ready and we decided that there was no point in risking that. It would be easier and probably more accurate to be able to see what was going on and hold the mirror because you have to shine it down from the roof through a tube into the instrument. Some days it was so cold that Solomon's eyes would close up when tears froze her eyelids together. She couldn't wear protective goggles because they stopped her seeing her instrument clearly. Solomon explains how the instrument worked. The way I like to explain it to people is it's like, you know, if you think about what happens when you shine white light through a crystal, you get a little rainbow, you separate out the colors. It's the same basic principle, but of course, you know, much more detailed to look at different uh, colors of light, different wavelengths of light. Certain molecules absorb some colors better than other colors. And so you're analyzing that differential signature as a function of color to tell what's in there. Um, so um, that's what we did. <laughs> and it was glorious. It was like, you know, you felt like a real Antarctic explorer doing this kind of um, very simple and yet effective measurement. The first measurements Solomon and her team took in late August showed high levels of ozone. Just three weeks later, ozone levels dropped to below 200 Dobson units, which is a measure used to track atmospheric ozone. Up until 1979, values of less than 220 had never been found. So now it was clear that ozone levels were too low. But scientists still had to answer the question, why? It was 1973 when two scientists at the University of California, Mario Molina and Sherwood Rowland, discovered that released chlorofluorocarbons, CFCs, could destroy atmospheric ozone. Listen closely, because CFCs play a major role in our story. Molina and Sherwood's theory was that ultraviolet light can break apart CFC molecules, releasing chlorine atoms, which react easily with ozone molecules. When a chlorine atom encounters an ozone molecule, it takes one of the oxygen atoms away, leaving oxygen, O2, and chlorine monoxide, ClO. Chlorine monoxide then reacts with another ozone molecule, converting it to two oxygen molecules, and in doing so, frees the chlorine to do more damage. But these gases, used in refrigerants, aerosol sprays, and the making of plastic foams, were not being released above the Antarctic. So why was it happening in the Antarctic? Solomon's theory was that polar stratospheric clouds were to blame. She thought that the reaction Molina and Sherwood talked about could be happening on the cloud's icy surfaces once sunlight arrived with the springtime. That would also explain why there was no depletion in the Arctic, which is much warmer. Between measuring the sunlight and moonlight on the roof of their research station, Solomon and the other scientists in her team had to join press conferences remotely to update the public on their findings. Everyone wanted to know what was happening at the South Pole. The world was watching. I mean, it was science in a fishbowl. First of all, one of the things that you don't feel comfortable with as a scientist very much is talking about your research before you've actually had it peer-reviewed. But we had to. I mean, given the circumstances, there was no way we weren't going to have to say something. But, you know, peer review happened pretty quickly. And within about, I think my paper was published 
six months after I, I'd have to go back and look. But so now at this point, it was pretty clear. You know, you had visible spectroscopy of CLO from, of OCLO from the ground. You had microwave spectroscopy of CLO from the ground. You had um, the laser fluorescence method by the Harvard group on the airplane. You know, three different ways of measuring chlorine monoxide, and they all told the same story, that the chlorine in the Antarctic was was greatly, greatly elevated and was approximately what you needed to create an ozone hole. And just like that, the world had all the information it needed. We knew why it was happening. We knew what was to blame and what we had to do to fix it. But what were we going to do about that? Did we have enough time to get something done? You'll find out on this season of Climate Solutions, Ozone, How to Solve an Environmental Crisis. But before we talk about how the governments and public around the world reacted to the news of the ozone hole, we'll go back in time to investigate how it all began, to a time before chlorofluorocarbons were even invented, to the dawn of the automobile age. That's on our next episode. Subscribe to Climate Solutions so you don't miss the next chapters of Ozone, the story of how we dealt with the biggest environmental disaster humanity encountered before climate change. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and wherever you get your podcasts. This was Climate Solutions from the European Investment Bank. <laughs>